Hey friends, and welcome to our second ever Elmhurst CRC Bible Deep Dive podcast. Pastor Greg here. I'm sitting with Karen Rivadonera. Hello, good to be here. And Reverend Jeff Klein. Also known as the breather, apparently, from last week's podcast. The deep breather, I the believe. deep breather. I was just trying to get the wind of the spirit flowing through the microphone. <laughs> if you listened in last week, Klein's microphone was maybe pointed a little too directionally at his nostrils. So I'm not, I'm not going to breathe this week. I'm going to try not to breathe for the whole podcast. Excellent. One deep breath. Here's your chance, Klein. One, two, three. <laughs> Okay. Excellent. Ready. If you're listening in your car or at home, please keep breathing all the way through. Excellent. Um, hey, our whole rationale for doing this is that um, even though Sunday worship services are great, God shows up regularly and faithfully, even though sermons are amazing. That's a little self-congratulatory. I mean, universally, like God does good work through sermons. <laughs> Everybody's laughing. I'm totally kidding. But in a 20-minute sermon... God does do good work through sermons. He does, indeed. <laughs> Um, <laughs> in a 20-minute sermon, you can only go so far. And as we're going to be working through the book of Acts this summer, there's so much amazing stuff in each chapter of the book of Acts, and we're trying to tackle one chapter a week in worship. And to go along with that, um, to have a 45-minute or hour-long podcast, it's going to allow us to go to the some more hidden places, the nooks and crannies of the Bible, and uh, hopefully, Spirit-led, take us down some tangents that will open our eyes, enter our hearts, challenge us a little bit more. So that's what this is all about. Acts chapter 2 is on the docket for today, and this is certainly one of the most transformative, uh, dramatic, exciting, colorful chapters in the entire Bible. So we're going to start reading Acts chapter 2, 1 through 13. If you want to follow along with the Bible, that would be awesome. We are reading from the New International or NIV version. So Pastor Jeff, kick us off. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our own native language? Here's a quick tour of the ancient world. Parthians and Medes and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they have had too much wine. Oh. What a start. Um, kind of amazing that in the midst of this incredible spiritual experience, half the reaction is like, ah, these people have been just drinking too much, as if there were some amazing kind of brunch with a table full of mimosas in the middle of Jerusalem during Pentecost. So speaking of Pentecost, oftentimes folks who are Christians following Jesus think like Pentecost is a, is a Christian holiday. But it is not. Where, where does Pentecost come from, Klein? Well, it's one of the Jewish feasts, and it actually celebrates, called also the Feast of Weeks, celebrates the first fruits of the harvest. But it also has some deeper meaning because the rabbis say, and it's true, that it's 50 days after Passover. And that, that's the day that Moses received the law on Mount Sinai. When there was more fire and more wind blowing, Moses got the Ten Commandments and was given the law. So they, they celebrate on Pentecost the giving of the law to the people of Israel. Yeah, oftentimes I hear casually people will say something about how Pentecost is 40 days after Easter. But this is, in fact, not the case. Um, Jesus' ascension is 40 days after Easter, and Pentecost, being a Jewish holiday, is actually 50 days. Like, Pentagon is a five-sided um, shape. So Pentecost is uh, 50 groups of 10, or uh, 50 days after the last Sabbath of Passover. Yeah, so think about it. These guys are waiting around for 10 days 
Like when Jesus says, go and wait. Mm -hmm. It's not just like a 15 minutes or whatever. It's like 10 days of sitting in a room together or whatever, praying and waiting for something to happen. Yeah. And also maybe a little hard for us to imagine in the Christian tradition is um, kind of the spiritual discipline of pilgrimage. And in Judaism, there are three main pilgrimage festivals. Not that every single Jew in the world went to everyone, but a huge gathering um, of folks assembling in Jerusalem. Every time there was a Passover festival, every time there was a Pentecost festival, and every time there was the festival of Sukkot. Um, so if you were hanging out in the ECRC uh, community last December, we did a deep dive on the festival of Sukkot, the roots and kind of how it connects to Jesus coming um, and his person. Um, yeah, so have you ever been on a pilgrimage? Or how does this, because even in Christian tradition, I'm not going to list them all, but there's kind of like seven classical spiritual disciplines. And certainly the discipline of making pilgrimage is something that not only was part of Judaism, but has historically been a part of Christianity, but is really a lost uh, art or practice on many of us modern people. Yeah, I really, I, I really haven't been on a intentional pilgrimage. I've gone to Israel. I've gone places and done things, but I've never really been an intentional pilgrimage anywhere. How about you, Karen? So I never really thought about it until this moment, but I realize I have. Um, when my family went to Sweden a couple summers ago, um, one of the things I wanted to see most of all was the church um, where my grandmother was baptized on a little island called Uland in the Baltic Sea, a beautiful, beautiful place. Um, and as we found that church, Runston Church, it's a part of the Church of Sweden, um, just standing there with my family, and this it was empty because we were there during the week, um, this little country church and standing literally before the baptismal font where she had been baptized and being able to touch that um, was a pretty remarkable experience and definitely had kind of a Holy Spirit moment, especially, mm -hmm. you know, people talk about the churches in Europe being dead. I don't believe that for one minute. Um, it's, you know, these churches are still vibrant. There are people worshiping there still, but just personally feeling the Holy Spirit of like, this is not where that's the faith began, but that's where the person I knew, you know, had been baptized. And, um, you know, when she came to America, then 16 years later, just bringing that faith with her and that faithfulness, um, it was a super, super powerful moment. Yeah, awesome. Probably the most famous Christian pilgrimage in the world these days is, well, maybe a pilgrimage to the Holy Land. And um, not to do a shameless advertisement, but we are trying to organize for an Israel 2022 trip, which for many of us maybe could function uniquely um, as a pilgrimage of sorts. Um, last year in 2020, um, I had actually planned, with permission from our elders, to be on sabbatical for a month and walk 500 miles across the north of Spain to the city of Santiago de Compostela, a path called El Camino. Um, so literally millions of people have, have walked this path. It's been around for like 1,200 years. And uh, I mean, the whole point of pilgrimage is not necessarily logging a bunch of miles, getting in your steps day after day after day, um, seeing a beautiful part of the world. That is not what it's all about, but it's creating time and space and setting out an endpoint journey with uh, the goal of experiencing the presence of God on the way and by setting aside that time and space, kind of opening yourself to what God might need to reveal about himself or say to you. And it's, I mean, a big part of it is coming to a new level of openness and honesty as yourself, as you make this metaphorical kind of mini life journey that kind of you're able to see like your, the entirety of your life along the pathway. So it's amazing for me to think that at this Pentecost, there would have been tens of thousands of Jews who had come from, I mean, up to a thousand miles away traveling over land and sea. Just imagine the logistics in the ancient world of, um, you know, no planes, trains, or cars to get to Jerusalem. So great sacrifice to get there. And that the, collectively, this group of people would have been incredibly open and receptive and probably honest and kind of in touch with the deepest desires of their heart. And it's in a moment like this that the Holy Spirit chooses to reveal himself. And it's kind of it's, cool that it's built into the calendar for these folks, these three pilgrimages, right? Not that you take all of them, 
but it's kind of cool. Like in our calendar in America, we build in vacations, right, to rest and relax. We don't build in pilgrimages. So it's, it's kind of neat to me that these folks had this built into their framework of their whole culture that, that this is, these are, you know, pilgrimages. And they go back to Jerusalem because that's where the temple is, right? That's a big deal. They get near the temple. That's the presence of God. So when you get really close to God, we're going to go to Jerusalem. And I think the amount of work, I mean, you mentioned the logistics, but, you know, it's, it is very different. You know, my family got on a plane and then we flew to Stockholm and rented a Volvo and drove down to the island, you know, and so it's like, it felt like, yeah, it's kind of a pain getting the family together and all that, but it's nothing like what would have happened in these pilgrimages. I mean, the amount of work, and I think there is something to be said for that too, and that's probably why people do the the walks, you know, yeah. the walking 500, because there's something about the excursion of it that I think does connect you. Yeah. So, I mean, one beautiful thing about the Spanish Camino is it's been going on for so many hundreds of years that there literally are these hostels and wayside places where hospitality and food and drink happens because you can't possibly pack enough shelter or provisions or food to get yourself 500 plus miles. So you're very much dependent on the kindness and hospitality of others. And so many have gone before and making this pilgrimage that people literally like that's their service to the world is helping travelers on the way. So even just like that is such a beautiful metaphor for how our, you know, spiritual lives go. That's awesome. Yeah, that's good. Um, So this little phrase filled with the Holy spirit often in church, we kind of bandy about this phrase. Um, Like what does it really mean? I mean, when the Holy spirit comes and oftentimes I think maybe we get, too concrete in our imagination of what really happened. Um, So it's kind of poetic and metaphorical language that is used here because it's the sound like the blowing of a violent wind. So it's not like just a whirlwind came through. No, it's a sound. It's a spiritual sound like a violent wind. And then it says that um, what seemed to be tongues of fire. So again, some kind of like... manifestation of something profound spiritually that happened, but I don't think it was like literally that everybody's head was on fire. It's like something that was so spiritually real that it like kind of like broke out into like our perceptive reality. And then this miracle happens. And whether it's a miracle of speaking or hearing, um, I don't think the Bible necessarily says, but clearly what was happening is a bunch of Galilean guys who did not know every language under the sun, were talking about God's promises being fulfilled in Jesus, and people from every corner of the Roman Empire were hearing it in their mother tongue. Yeah. Some people would say that this filling with the Holy Spirit, you know, as God, since this is Pentecost and the coming of the law to Moses, as God wrote the law in tablets of stone on Mount Sinai, now he's going to write the laws, it says in Jeremiah, on the hearts of people, right? So mm-hmm. part of the filling of the Holy Spirit is this, this uh, writing the law in your heart and being filled with this desire to follow the law of God versus this obligation. So that would be, that'd be one thing people could say about this filling of the Holy Spirit, but this seems way more um, supernatural than just that. What I, what I appreciate about this is I think for a lot of us, when we think about being filled with spirit, like we view many things in the Christian faith today as Chris, American Christians, is that it's a very individual thing. You know, you think that person is really filled with the spirit. That fill, and this is both individual and communal. Like this is all these people are experiencing that together. And I don't know, just to kind of think about the differences of what that means. Like, is it just something happening inside or is it like something kind of enveloping everybody or both? Um, and just the ways that that can translate today. Yeah, I totally appreciate that, that this is way beyond just a personal individualistic thing going on. Um, It's really a miracle of unity Mm -hmm. um, and understanding and clarity. Um, So for sure, it's kind of like a reversal of what happened in Genesis chapter 11 at the Tower of Babel, where Uh, everybody spoke the same language and human culture is kind of going sideways and a miracle of confusion happens that all of a sudden a bunch of tongues break out and no one can understand each other any longer. And here that totally gets turned upside down that in Jesus' name, all of a sudden everybody can understand each other and there's clarity and there's coming together that happens. So all of that is like profoundly, like not that individuals don't matter, but it's happening on a very connecty 
Right. Uh, I think we just level. we just get caught up in very much of personal salvation and my relationship with Jesus, and none of that is bad or wrong, but we forget that there is the collective that's also important. Yeah, so. And this is the apostles that are filled with the Holy Spirit. The rest of the folks are hearing these this translation of the gospel being presented, right? This this they're speaking in their languages, so they're filling the Holy Spirit's those apostles that were waiting for something to happen. Yeah. So well, we know there were 120. Right. Right. So, I it doesn't necessarily clarify if it's the 12 apostles or the original group of 120. I kind of take it to be like all of those that were assembled together. So maybe a larger number. But it could have been. Yeah. Yeah, so out of this moment um, comes what everybody is longing for, a sermon. (laughs) Nine nine in the morning. Somebody start preaching. 9 a.m. and it's time to preach. (laughs) Exactly. So um, Peter stands up and delivers what really is the first Christian sermon. So We'll probably take a couple stops along the way, but um, kind of continue from Acts chapter 2, 14, all the way through verse 41. So Peter stood up with the 11, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in these days, and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above, in signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the, bl- the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Awesome. So maybe not a giant shocker out of the group of 120 and then out of the 12 apostles, it is Peter who stands up first and raises his voice. Are you surprised by that, Klein? Not at all. Peter's like chomping at the bit to do something. (laughs) Right. So um, Peter for sure has the gift of boldness, uh, gift of leadership, So it is striking he doesn't kind of head off on his own um, in terms of his own ideas or his own words, but immediately pivots to Old Testament prophecy. So he's addressing Jewish brothers and sisters, and again, is not trying to do something innovative, but connect the dots between the sacred scriptures that everybody would have known, the God that they were in Jerusalem to worship, and this person, Jesus. So why do you think he started with Joel chapter 2? Or I guess what's of interest or what, what is provocative about this passage that he starts with in his very first sermon? Well, it is interesting that it talks about it being the last days, which, of course, now we would look and go, wait a minute, the last days. It was the first two, days. 2,000 years ago, <laughs> this is the first days, right? So it is interesting that he pivots to Joel. Um, obviously, he talks about the Spirit of God coming, so he's, he's connecting the coming of the Spirit to this prophecy in the Old Testament. I always find it fascinating that I don't think he had a Bible that he opened up and started reading from. Like Probably he, not. He knew this. So this was part of his DNA. Like he had memorized this. This was in his, or maybe the Spirit brought it to mind. I don't know. But one way or the other, he quotes this out and, you know, just starts going, which is amazing. Yeah. So it's certainly one of the striking things to me, just having talked about um, when the Holy Spirit falls, it being like a knitting together of community. One of the first things that pops out in this, passage from Joel is that the kingdom and the vision of the kingdom is for everybody. So it's not just young people, it's old people too. It's not just guys, it's not just male rabbis, it's women too, it's young men, it's, it's young women, it's like the vision of who's together, like it's everybody, it's, it's all in. Even on my servants, he says, which I think is kind of an interesting line too, that it's, it's a I mean, I'm assuming that means our kind of servant that we have today, you know, but just sort of a humble position. And I, I, yeah, yeah, I agree. But I also, I mean, I just appreciate how, again, if he's speaking to a group of Jews, it's like this, this emphasis on connecting Jesus to the, the prophecies and the, you know, as the Messiah, you know, something that was so important for them to understand, even though, you know, Jesus didn't overthrow 
Rome in the way perhaps people had hoped that the Messiah would do, but he's still trying to make that connection of this is, this is who'd been prophesied. It's a great question, like why Joel? It kind of gets me thinking for the first time, like because, I mean, Ezekiel's got way better passages about the coming of the Spirit. I will put a new heart in you, give you a new spirit, new flesh. I'll move you with my spirit to keep my laws and decrees. Or Jeremiah, I'll write this on your heart and you know move you. So those are the more famous prophets, the major prophets. Yeah. But he chooses instead this little passage in Joel 2, which actually has some kind of strange undertones of like the end of the world, the moon turning to blood, all this scary scary stuff. It's kind of scary. scary. Yeah. So it's like, it'd be interesting to dig into that at some point. Yeah. And certainly Peter didn't even understand the implications of this prophecy yet. Because if you keep reading in the book of Acts, like the apostles did not have the imagination to see that Samaritans would be included. True. Did not have the imagination yet to imagine that Gentiles would be included. It's like the Holy Spirit had to do like some fresh work to expand their hearts and imaginations to be open to that. So you quote, <laughs> this is very comforting as a preacher, quite frankly, that like you're never going to really get the word of God, even though it might be working through you and coming out of your mouth. It's just way bigger than what we can possibly imagine. Yeah. But I like the idea, Jeff, that maybe it was just something he had had memorized and it sort of just came out. And maybe and he probably didn't think about it ahead of time, but just was like, oh, yeah, this and how, you know, maybe he's up there looking at us like, I don't know why I said it. Perhaps we'll find out in the chosen season seven exactly. what it's all about. Um, so, yeah, we kind of mentioned some of the scary dynamics uh, of Joel chapter two, um, which, yeah, kind of paints the last days and sort of chaotic and symbolic terms, but then this closing phrase, I think this is maybe why Peter brought it up, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So again, like put a pin in that statement, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, which implies the question, like, what's the name of the Lord? Like, if I need to be saved, I need to be rescued. Like, what, what name do I turn to? What name do I call out. Because if you were a Jewish person, you couldn't call out the name of the Lord. Correct. You wouldn't say it. You, it was just not, it was not a speakable name. So this is a crazy thought. Wait a minute. To call in the name of the Lord? Man, I can actually yell it out. Like, what does that mean? What does that look like? Yeah. Okay. So we're going to keep pushing forward because yeah. this will come more clear in Peter's sermon. So then he says, fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth, was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also rests in hope because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. Awesome. So it becomes clear in the second part of Peter's message, whose name do we call on to be saved? I mean, his next line is, listen to this, Jesus of Nazareth. So this is, this is where Peter is taking this Pentecost audience um, to Jesus of Nazareth. Um, so it's interesting to me, like, wow, P Peter was a bold guy. Pretty much he's laying at the feet of all the assembled Jews in Jerusalem. Like, you put this guy to death. Like, it's our fault collectively. <laughs> but then the flip side um, that God raised him from the dead and freed him from the agony of death. So it's notable to me that um, in early Christian preaching, um, there's a super strong evident, um, emphasis on the resurrection. If you ask a modern Christian, like, what's the good news? I think more often than not, like an American will be like, Jesus died for your sins. Like, that's, that's like our go-to summary. Uh, I don't think Peter had a message that that was the kind of like the central point of, you know, kind of his teaching. His message was, we put him to death and God raised him from the dead. So those, that's like the two barrels that have to go together. 
So it's curious to me, like, how did we end up in this modern place where we collapse the gospel into Jesus died for your sins? Um, like, if you're going to leave out one of the two barrels, I would really want to default to, like, God raised Jesus from the dead, and he's, like, living and interceding for us and reigning from the right hand of God. We ignore Jesus' whole life a lot of times, too. I mean, when we, when we narrow it down, you know, I read recently that if the death in even resurrection was the only thing that matters, why not? Why didn't Herod just kill him and raise the baby, you know, from the dead? Like, right. And I think, so I, I do, I agree. We, we condense the gospel into this little thing and, and just make it about Jesus. Again, it's the personalization. Jesus died for my sins. It's totally true. It's totally transforming, but there's so much more. And yeah, I mean, the resurrection is the thing that's conquering it all. Do you think it's, uh, you know, we like the symbol of a cross. Even Such a, ple- ple- empty a pleasant cross. symbol. I know. I'm just saying it's crazy. Like, what, how do you symbolize resurrection or a tomb? We have a hard time putting pictures to that. Greg has a thought about that. I've, I've made a few symbolic uh, renderings of this. If you're listening to this and our artist, call me up. I would love to get this <laughs> in the works. I mean, the Old Testament is full of images. There's the, there's the dry bones coming to life. There's, there's water flowing in places. You know, there's all these images that are resurrection images that are painted, I think, by God in prophecy, pointing to this resurrection moment. But, yeah, it seems like for some reason the church embraced the cross, and that's become our central symbol instead of the symbol of the resurrection. Yeah. Or a new life. Yeah, I'm friends with an um, old guy in Chicago um, named Gregory Athnos. He used to teach at um, North Park. He's a musician, really, but sometime in his career, maybe like 45 years ago as a professor, he was, through a couple quirks, granted um, access to like the archives at the Vatican and to the catacombs. And he wrote a couple books on early Christian artwork. And one of the things that blew his mind is like, when you see like the drawings, the cave drawings that were rendered by the first Christians, there are no crosses. Like crosses pretty much don't appear until no one was getting crucified any longer. Like three to four hundred years after this. All the portrayals of Jesus are like Jesus with Daniel coming out of the lion's den. Uh, Like Noah being rescued from the ark. It's all like the rescue and coming back to life stories from the Old Testament that the Christians, first Christians were obsessed with painting. It's kind of like if you're a Jewish person, you wouldn't be like having the plagues on your uh, wall of your synagogue. You'd be having... <laughs> Flies. You'd be having... Yeah, you'd be having like the, Boils. the walk through the Red Sea is the redemption moment, right? Is the new life moment. So it is interesting that we use the cross as this symbol. Yeah, it wasn't until Christianity became culturally dominant and successful that the cross as a symbol really became. So I'm not trying to downplay the cross of Jesus or the centrality of the sacrifice of Jesus. Far from it. It's just, it's curious. It is. It is curious. Um, So speaking of life, Peter quotes from Psalm 16 here, um, which is one of the bright spots in the Old Testament that really kind of hints at um, eternal life or resurrection, and those are kind of few and far between in the Old Testament. Um, so these, these words quoted from Psalm 16, you will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life and fill me with joy in your presence. Um, so just a quick, quick aside. Um, oh, this is going back probably 12 years. I was reading the Psalm um, as part of my daily Bible reading at... It's like 5.30 in the morning, and my phone rings. I'm like, hmm, it was, yeah, Hinsdale Hospital, and got just tragic news that, I hope this is okay with Judy, um, that Marty Dute had, like, tragically died. Like, I'm reading these words, these very words, like, when the phone rings, and... um, yeah, for sure. And Judy, who's an elder here, I mean, just a tragic and, and dark and difficult day um, in her life. And I, <laughs> I feel like God was so kind, like, to have me in this part of the Bible and to be able to give that to, um, like, a, a beautiful uh, woman in that moment. 
So, yeah, I, I think this is a particular part of the Bible that God does want the, the church to link to like, resurrection and life. And again, Peter keeps pivoting back to the Old Testament, right? First Joel, and now Psalm 16, and he's not done. Just we need to read a few more words, and then another psalm from Psalm um, 110 is going to come to the forefront of his sermon. So do you think he has all these things memorized? Like, what, what's he doing? Why is he quoting so much Old Testament scripture? Well, I think we make the same mistake when we think of Jesus teaching. We think he's just making this stuff up on the scenes, but he's actually, he's very much in, like, in the middle of this ancient scripture, this Hebrew scriptures that have been around forever, that all these uh, religious Jews understood and knew. I mean, you know, when you go to Israel, Ray Vandalon will tell you that they were memorizing it till they were 12 years old. So that mm-hmm. they, were, they were really immersed in the Torah and these pieces of scripture and studying it and soaking it in and taking it in. It was like they were people of the book, more than were people of the book, really. So, so I have no doubt that, you know, this is kind of their uh, piece of authority to, to hearken back to this. And it helps, the, you know, he's trying to help his fellow Israelites to make the connections, connect the dots that probably he's connected by being with Jesus all this time. Yeah. When's the last time you memorized anything on purpose, Karen? Um, it's been a long time. <laughs> I kind of put her on the yeah, spot. Yeah, right. Here. Thank you. I'm not a big memorizer. No, no and no, why, why totally. would you when you right. have a phone and right. a laptop and have the world of the internet right. at your fingertips and can have, you know, anything in front of your eyes? Right. And that's, and it's funny because especially I'm not a musician, obviously, but, and I'm very much a word person, but Psalm 46 has been very meaningful to me um, lately. And when my classmates had recorded a version of the song last summer, I've been playing that again and again, because I do want those words to sink into my mind. Um, But it is interesting that I'm like, oh, great, there's a musical version of it, because that's much easier than sitting down and intentionally, you know, whatever. Yeah, no, totally agree with that. I think we're probably at the low ebb of... um leveraging our memorization capacities. But I am, <laughs> oh, no, I was going to say I am on record when my kids were memorizing states and capitals, you know, in fourth grade or whatever I do, I did, you know, say out loud to them, this is ridiculous. You should be at this point memorizing poetry because, I, you know, our memories need a good workout. They're in public school, so they're not going to memorize scripture. But um, states and capitals, it just feels like that's a little easy to, but that's it, too easy to Google. Let's memorize some other significant things. It's an interesting insight though about the cell phones and everything. I mean, when I was younger, I knew hundreds of phone numbers totally. by memory and now I know no phone numbers. I couldn't tell you my kids' phone numbers, Yeah, right? Because it's all my phone. I can just push in there and go. I Siri, know, right? call Ben. <laughs> right. I don't, I don't need to like memorize it. I it just call, right. you know, so there is something I think powerful about the fact yeah. that these guys, they weren't carrying around Bible, but Bible with them. They had to figure, you know, had to right. commit it to memory. It, you think of um, situations even in America where we are in a group of people where everybody has the same thing memorized, like even just singing the national anthem. Um, I mean, rec- recently there was a New York Islanders game, like the last game, and whoever was, I forget the name of the singer, actually a Jewish woman, who typically sings at Islander games, and she just like dropped the mic after the first game in this throng of, you know, newly gathered like 20,000 people is just like belting out. I mean, it's like goosebumps. Yeah. Not because like, Everybody in Long Island, New York is a great singer, but because everybody like has it in their bot- the bottom of their heart and after a year of pandemic, like is singing it with a level of intensity and freedom, but it's also just deep down in there. Yeah. I mean, sometimes have it in church with something like Amazing Grace or in whatever might be your community, you know, like every community has like top 10 songs, like hopefully everybody has these things, you know, in their heart. Well, I mean, it's Psalm 119, right? Thy word have I hid in my heart. And it says about, that I might not sin against thee, but I think there's other reasons to hide it in your heart, right? Other ways that that can become a real powerful thing. That if, it, you know, the Lord brings those things to mind, you know, so. Just yeah. smiling to see you say thee. All right. I know. Well, that, like why, really old why did I do that translation? <laughs> <laughs> that was like, that was the Jeff Klein King James <laughs> Version <laughs> translation. Well, that's how that's Jeff surprising. memorized no, it I when know. he that's was 12 years probably old. Probably when that's I was 12 great. years old, I did it, yeah. yeah. So, yeah. Awesome. All right, we're going to keep pressing on, starting at verse 29 um, toward the end of the sermon. Peter continues, Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. By the way, we don't know where it is. 2,000 years later. Uh, well, 
I mean, there is a David's tomb I've been to in Israel. I don't know if it's the real one, but there is one there. It's right near the Temple Mount, but again, don't know. Yeah, we don't know. Okay. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) All right. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. And seeing what was to come, David spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said this. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Okay, I'm going to pause there because these are, I think, remarkable words. So Jewish folks for a thousand years have been waiting the Messiah. And Peter is saying, here's his identity. And remember, Peter started with this quote from Joel. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And now Peter is saying very clearly, God has made Jesus both Lord and Messiah. So if you long to be rescued by God, if you've made a pilgrimage for a thousand miles and you desire something from God, call on the name of the Lord, call on the name of the Lord Jesus. And that's not all. He's the Messiah as well. Um, When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Brothers and sisters. Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. And with many other words, he warned them and pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted the message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Does that sound like a good church service? That's a pretty good one. <laughs> 3,000 baptized. And there's actually, there's actually lots of uh, mikvahs that have been uncovered around the temple. What's a mikvah, Klein? A mikvah is a Jewish washing. It's like a baptismal fount. If you see them, they have stairs going down and you always went to the synagogue or the temple wet. So you would go into the mikvah to purify yourself, sort of physically purify a symbol of this internal purification you made. So the baptisms probably happened right there in those mikvahs, 3,000 people being baptized in all these Mm -hmm. mikvahs around the temple, which is a cool image. You know, we we have like one baptism. It's like, woo woo, 3,000 baptisms in the same day of all these people that have come to know Jesus, that's, that'd be amazing to witness and be Indeed. a part of. I'm sure we had a bunch of confused and maybe disgruntled priests at this point, too. I would think so. Of course, yeah. I'm thinking just logistics, and that's a lot of people. Do they have enough water to keep going in the, in the middle of the desert? They fill that? Or? Well, this is, in, this is in Jerusalem. That's in Jerusalem. And so the mikvahs always had to be filled with living water. That was part of the, you know, that's the, that's the rule, living water. So it has to be moving water that they mm-hmm. bring to the mikvahs. But, yeah, the mikvahs actually are pretty deep. Okay. The ones I've seen and been in are pretty deep. So they would definitely have enough water, I think. To, and, again, if there's 120 of these folks in the upper room, maybe they're all baptizing these people, women and men, mm-hmm. baptizing the folks that are coming to receive Jesus in this moment. Yeah. Um, so one kind of fun detail to me is just like the prophecy in Joel starts out with this, um, image of people of all walks of life and ages and men and women, um, young men and women too. So Peter ends with like Jesus being Lord and Messiah is for everybody. Uh, this promise is for you, your children, all who are far off. Again, he didn't get just how wide embracing and big that really was, but like there it is from like day one of the Christian church. Yeah, that struck me. What do you think he means far off? Does he mean far away? Does he mean far from the faith? What, what do you think is meant there? Well, I, th- I think all of the above. And again, we had people who had made this incredible thousand mile plus mm-hmm. pilgrimage. So he's saying like, when you go back to wherever it is, you're going back like those people too. Yeah, it's remarkable. It's wonderful. Um, so Peter drops one more Old Testament quotation from Psalm 110 and uh, 
I think Peter would have heard Jesus preach on this a few different times in Matthew chapter 22. Um, it's a time of testing, like the, the Pharisees asked Jesus about paying taxes to Caesar. Jesus brilliantly replies. The Sadducees test him about marriage after the resurrection. Jesus brilliantly replies again. And then, I think just because Jesus is awesome, he turns the tables and asks a question um, to all the religious leaders. So I'm, I'm going to read just briefly from Matthew chapter 22. Um, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, what do you think about the Christ, you guys? Whose son is he? Just if you didn't think Jesus was annoying, totally. He knows how to get people. <laughs> well, the son of David, they replied. Right? That's whose son the Messiah and the Christ are. And then Jesus said to them, How is it then that David, speaking through the Holy Spirit, calls him Lord? For David says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. So Jesus quoting from Psalm 110, those same words. And if David calls him Lord, said Jesus, How can he be his son? No one could say a word in reply, and from that day, no one else dared to ask Jesus any more questions. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, that'd be awesome to have that. Yeah. So that, Jesus doing that probably would have only been like two months beforehand. Right. Right. So Peter's heard this from Jesus and is now, again, he's found this address of the Messiah in the, in the Hebrew Scriptures, and he's pointing it out to the people as part of his sermon, which is awesome. Yeah, I'd love to think that even some of the residents of Jerusalem maybe heard Jesus like say those words in this moment, and then just a short time after, like again, Peter is making it clear, like I'm not making up my own stuff. Like I'm connecting the dots to the Old Testament prophecy, and I'm connecting this to like the the genius of Jesus, who is the Messiah, who is just standing in our midst, talking about these same words. For sure. I like the boldness, too, of that, because I feel like if that were me, I'd be so nervous, like, okay, Jesus handled that really well, and it went great for him. I'm going to say it, and it's probably going to mess the whole thing up, but he nails it in his own way. Well done, Peter. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so um, it's not quite a drop-the-mic phrase, but because Peter continues after saying this line, but I think the most potent line is, therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and and Messiah. And again, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The other thing, though, too, that I'm just looking back, I'd circled these words, um, that apparently he, he said other things that are not contained in, in this passage, but that he warned and pleaded with them. Because that's sort of an interesting take, too. It's like, you know, that it, it must have gotten very emotional, like this idea that he was like, this is very serious. And like the idea that he's pleading and that would lead to the baptism. So it wasn't wasn't just, you know, in the words that we're reading here, but really this deep concern for their future, for the what's coming. Yeah. It's kind of interesting. Yeah, that really emphasizes that the Jesus way is um, kind of countercultural and against the grain of mm-hmm. whatever is going on. Because, like, what generation could not say, like, just take a look around you. Like, stuff is, like, yeah, going to Hades a in a handbasket. Or it's, yeah, it's a mess. Or, like, imagine where this is going. Like, two generations from now mm-hmm. and 2000 years ago, that was the case. Probably we could name some things today that make us a little easy about how, how this is going to turn out in 50 years. And the counterpoint in every culture and every situation is call upon the name of the Lord. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's awesome that they're cut to the heart. It says right in there, you know, verse 37, they were cut to the heart. So wait a minute. That sounds like emotional language. Well, Are you saying that something in them was convicted that they needed to change? <laughs> it didn't just all click in their it minds. Didn't just and click went, in their brains. Sense. Their hearts actually were like, "Whoa, aching!" Like something has like, "Wow, cut them!" Like this is this is we've got to do something about this, right? Which is, I think, where repentance comes from, mm-hmm. right? So Peter tells them, "Repent and be baptized," and they're cut to the heart. It's pretty cool. They want to know what they, what, what should we do? Well, you know, you know, repent and be baptized. That's what you got to do. Yeah. Um, if you're listening to this podcast, we're kind of showing our cards that the goal of a worship service is not to just learn a few interesting things about the Bible. That may happen. And that's one of the goals of this podcast, to like 
Hopefully it allows parts of the Bible to sink in a little deeper. But God's agenda for us is not to just give us a decent education, to not give us a few tantalizing things that, you know, find, hit the curious buttons in our mind, but it's actually to hit us in the place where we, like, when you're cut to the heart, it's like you know that you know that you know that you need to change, that this is true, that something needs to give, that something needs to shift. And really, that's the goal of all of our worship services. So not every worship service does that happen to everybody in, but if you keep showing up regularly in God's presence in a worship service, like, God will do this work to you. Yeah, exactly. So that's why when people say, well, I'm not being fed, you know, by the, by the sermons or whatever, it's like, what? Okay, well, then you're not listening with your heart. Have people told you that? No one uh, has ever said no that No one has ever said to you? <laughs> no. Uh, that's happened a few times, uh, maybe, in the past, you know. Yeah. Yeah, so in- interestingly, if... Dear listener, if you've ever said that to a pastor, oftentimes I find those words are like wallpaper over something deeper that's going on. So if you find yourself that you're tempted to say that, I would just challenge you to like to dig deeper because those words um, genuinely express some kind of dissatisfaction or emptiness about something. And if you want to say that, I encourage you just to keep pushing until you get to a deeper place of where the discontentment or the holy longing or the dissatisfaction truly lies. Maybe change your definition of what fed means or looks like, or maybe make it more about thirst or something. Cause I think that's it. Like people say that it's like, if I haven't learned something new today, but really to me, worship is about experience, right? And God doing that hard work. So yeah, sometimes I sit through a whole sermon. And I'm like, Oh, that was good. But you know, nothing really happens, nothing to you, but there might be some other song or there might be another moment or just seeing somebody weeping in a service. And that's where I'm feeling the, the spirit move. So it's like, look at it a little broader. Yeah. So, um, having heard the same thing from a bunch of really mature Christians over time about worship services and sermons, I I would summarize their reaction to something like this. Even the worst worship service I've ever been to, sermon was horrible, music was out of tune, like God had something for me, like a phrase, a word, like something that sunk into the deep place and cut me to the heart. It is not about the quality of the preacher. It's not about the quality of the music. Like if Jesus is at the center of it and God's word is read and presented, I don't care how smart you are. Like there is something for you and it's the challenge on us. This is an individual challenge that Mm -hmm. we come with that expectation and openness um, to receive whatever it is. Yeah, the Lord has a word for you, right? It's through his Holy Spirit and it's gonna come out in some way. And like you said, it might come out in a prayer that said it might come out just because you're sitting quietly for the first time all week and suddenly the Holy Spirit can get through and speak to you. Yeah. Yeah, so. So um, all the time as preachers we have it where people come away from a message and are like, oh, the part of the message where like this was said, that totally was God speaking to me. And I'll be like, I never said that. Exactly. (laughs) I've had it happen. It's the Holy Spirit like doing something in someone's inner being and they're bearing (laughs) witness to it and it happened not through the sermon. Right. It just happened because yeah. when you said, the Holy Spirit's connecting when, dots. When you said this, it really, I'm like, I didn't say that. <laughs> so, I don't know what's happening. Yeah. Amen. I t- well, I take great comfort in this, and I right. hope and pray for more of these experiences. I just care that people meet with God, right. right? And it takes the pressure off whoever is speaking or praying or presenting. Like, you don't have to be a super genius. You don't have to, like, plan the outcome. You just need to create the openness for the Holy Spirit to do whatever the Holy Spirit desires to do. And I would even say when there's things about the sermon that bug you or you go, I don't know if that's right. or Not that that ever happens to no. me. But even holding on to that and taking it with you into the day and maybe praying about it or reading yeah, more about wondering it. Wondering like, about it. Wondering about it. Like I've had God work in amazing ways through things like that where you leave kind of irritated or frustrated and then it, it can turn. Usually Karen comes out of her office I mean, on a Wednesday, right? And she says to Greg or I, whoa, I get it. I finally I get understand. it. The blinders the have holy, come off. The, the scales are fell. dropping from my eyes. After three days of complaining nice. about it. All right, let's bring this thing home. Klein, uh, right, take us go. to the end of chapter two of Acts. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. 
they sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day, they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Wow, that sounds amazing. What a beautiful picture of what church can be like, could be like. And then they all lived happily ever after, right? Yep. And end of the book of action, right there. The book of action ends right here. Nothing. (laughs) Nobody burned at any stakes at any point. Yeah. Um, so sometimes we kind of idealize this picture of the church. So maybe let's talk about though, like the the signs of healthy community that uh, that emerge here. Like what 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 strikes you as? Well, there's as, these are good good things. I love that word devoted themselves, and they have these four values or these four activities that they lean into as a church, right? And so. Again, can, the, can we mention them explicitly again? Yeah, so they so devoted the apostles' themselves. teaching, mm-hmm. which is probably like scripture, right? Right. So it, the Bible's there. Mm-hmm. Bible's there. The, there's fellowship, which is maybe deeper than just hanging out and having a beer. This yeah. is like we're actually digging in and we're connecting. We're becoming a community together. Mm-hmm. There's the breaking of bread, which is obviously the Lord's Supper, in addition to probably eating together, also meals, right? And then there's prayer. These four values, these four actions are taking. Um, and I think it shows the intentionality of a life of a church. And I think one of the things we're missing in our modern day world is that we're so busy that we don't really have these intentional practices that regularly become part of our walk with Jesus. Right? We, we sort of haphazardly practice our Christian faith. So like the thought we're devoted to prayer, eh, we're not really. If we have a prayer meeting, we might get five or six folks to come, but we're not really devoted to prayer. You know, for, just we have to be honest, I and mean, even even as pastors and leaders, right, we're, we're, we lean more into action and activity than we do a prayer. Um, I think we're devoted to the breaking of the bread. Every month we do communion. We're devoted to the Word of God. We preach it every week, and hopefully people are reading it, right? Mm-hmm. But even fellowship now is kind of like, you know, it's optional. You know, we have, we, we have to create small groups and put people in them and have a leader who calls them together. And then, of course, calling them together is like herding cats because nobody ever comes and people are busy. It's not a priority, right? So, so it's interesting that we've lost some of these values as people in the church in the modern day. They've been squeezed out a little bit. I still see, though, in our church, this does get so idealized. And, um, you know, we have a great deal of generosity in this church, I think, unlike I've ever seen. So Truly. I don't want to act like all of this is just gone, you know, this spirit. And and even the breaking of bread, you know, whether, I guess I always read that as less specifically having communion and more literally just having a meal together, but probably it was both. Um, I think there is a lot. I mean, people hang out, you know, part of your concern as an outreach pastor is we're too insular. We don't, you know, spread out into the community. But um, so I think we do have a good sense of generosity and um, community. The one thing I just kind of underlined was the idea that they met, though, with glad and sincere hearts. And that's the part I'm wondering, not that we're dishonest or insincere or not glad people, but that just there's such a lovely spirit about that phrase of people who are just real and thankful. I'm glad to me is such a fantastic word. I always think of it as like half thankful, half happy. You know, it's mm-hmm. this beautiful marriage of those two things. And um, yeah, so that kind of struck me. Maybe that's a, an important spirit, especially coming out of the pandemic. How do we become glad and sincere people in the church? Yeah, this was a contagious mm-hmm. lifestyle. It doesn't say they were preaching. It just says the Lord adds to their number daily those who are being saved. So something so contagious about this that people are being drawn into it. Well, we did kind of pass over being filled with awe at the many wonders and signs a good point. <laughs> that a good we're being. Point. Yes. So there's healings <laughs> yeah. that are happening. There's, right. you know, things being mended and put back together. And I think people are asking, like, how is this possible? Well, in Jesus' name is how these, right. these things are possible. By the power of the Holy Spirit, right? Yeah. For sure. And I mean, even just mentioning, you know, I don't know which of you said, but that they had the Bible. Like, they didn't really have, they didn't have the Bible as we know it. They had the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament. So even that's interesting to me is they weren't sitting there reading the words of Paul or even the Gospels. Like, they didn't, they were hearing the stories and watching the signs and wonders. And so you think about, like, how would we do if we just had the Old Testament today? And just, you know, what would it be like? I mean, that's so interesting to think about church 
yeah. without the New Testament. So uh, another thing that doesn't necessarily occur to us often 2,000 years later is they very much saw this as continuous with Judaism. They did not see sure. themselves as like, mm. we're a different thing now. Like we know from later chapters in the book of Acts, like they're worshiping at the temple every day. Right. They're praying at the Jewish temple every day. I mean, in Jesus' name, Jesus as Lord and Messiah. Um, yeah, it says right even here, every day they continue to meet together in the temple courts, right? So they were, it was outdoors, I just want to point out. Uh-oh. <laughs> it was in the temple courts. How did they do indoors. it? <laughs> they couldn't go inside, only the priests They could. probably had fans going on stuff outside. I think we're so going to change put, church that way. Only Greg and I will be able to go into the Holy of Holies. The rest of you <laughs> will have to stay And by at Holy a of Holies, we mean air conditioning. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. So... Not to get after this yeah, too hard, right? But, but like Passover is in the spring. Pentecost is 50 days later. So these first days of the church are in the heat of a Jerusalem summer. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, so I just want to, in a positive way, cast the vision that when you can gather around God's word, where you can fellowship with other spiritually committed people, where you can break bread together, where you can enjoy the power of communal prayer, like it doesn't matter if it's hot or cold, or outside, or inside, like those things are way better than any physical space or room or like I would way rather be outdoors in 20 degree weather without a coat and enjoying these spiritual realities Mm -hmm. than in a perfectly air conditioned 72 degree room. So Karen's not sure, but... So I'm still young enough that maybe I'm dumb about this because obviously we want to welcome and be hospitable toward a maximum number of people and that still in the waning days of a pandemic is why we're worshiping outside because it is, I believe, the best way to maximize participation and the greatest number of people to enjoy these spiritual realities. How do we... Yeah, but let's think about that, that. You brought this up. You know, the signs and wonders performed by the apostles. Like, I feel like that's where the church needs to get back to a little bit becoming this uh, place where supernatural stuff happens, not just stuff that anyone else can do, but stuff where only the Lord can do this, only the Spirit of God can do this. So, so like, I don't even think we lean into this much. Like, we, we don't really think of ourselves as signs and wonder performers, <laughs> or that, like, the Spirit wants to do a sign and wonder through us to point to himself or to point to Jesus. Sure. But, you know, like... So, um, just to bear witness a little bit, I, I feel like some of our privacy stuff gets in the way of this, but, like, so I mentioned Judy Dude. I would call that like a Holy Spirit miracle that like God had a random person, me, who was going to, yeah. I mean, identify the body of a person with this part of scripture, like the last thing in my brain. Like, that's true. That's a, that's, mir- true. that's a miracle of scripture. This right. last Sunday we're outdoors and some, the first person who comes up to me is like, hey, while you're leading that little meditation exercise during the closing song, God told me this. As right. a miracle, right? When you get a revelation, a personal revelation from God, we're inviting people to pray and be anointed with oil. We have Spring Hill Camp going on right now. Like I had the privilege of listening to a couple Spring Hill counselors, like anointing them with oil, and one of them, like their reaction, made it very clear that their being at that worship service was like God saying something very so. Like, that's just in, yeah. in one hour. Like, I call those signs and wonders. Right. As it's 100% true. the Holy Spirit. But I'm guessing, like, if we poked all the people who are gathered on Sunday, we would find dozens and dozens of those signs so and I'm wonders. So I'm kind of resistant to the idea that they're not happening. And I'm suggesting that we just need to be a little more bold in proclaiming, like, I was in Christian fellowship and God actually. This like, is what happened. Did, yes, this is what happened. But I want somebody like levitating over the stage or something. You know what I'm saying, Karen? A real sign of wonder. I totally know what you're saying, and I want that too. Although, <laughs> man, yeah, there's been a lot of people recently, I don't know, in the past 30 years who've kind of ruined that, I think, and yeah, made everybody true. very skeptical. But I agree. I mean, especially as we're coming out of a pandemic and as it becomes easier for people to just watch church on TV, I feel like we need to increasingly be looking at what are the reasons to come here? Why do we gather? And, you know, communion is among them, prayer, being anointed, all those, but... But something Signs and happens. wonders, but yeah, I mean, that's, something happens when the body I of Christ comes together, right? When there's when there's more than three people in the room and they're gathered around the, totally the name of Jesus happens. and the Word of God, something definitely happens. It doesn't happen when you're just by yourself. It's a, it's a different kind of like Holy Spirit Agreed. presence, I think. 
totally agree. So that's a good reason to come to church, right? To to get out of your and say, I, I got to go there and be with the people of God, right? They, that's that's one of the values. They gather together every day in the temple courts. There was something going on by gathering. So it was it was good. It was cool. Especially if there's levitation. Is that well, ever a Christian practice? No, that always sounds a little. <laughs> it's not. I mean, I do. I agree with Greg. I mean, during Alpha, we did a couple yeah. of different Holy Spirit weekends, and then also, you know praying for healing Mm -hmm. and we saw God do miraculous things right here in the worship center in the garden room just praying over people uh, for the healing that and and God was giving us words actually the Holy Spirit was giving us words of what was going on in the room so we could actually specifically pray for people that were going through things that maybe they didn't want to even say out loud but so I think I just I guess my thing is I just want us to all lean into that I feel like you know like we all need to lean into the fact that the Spirit of God's filled us with His power, and we can lean into that on a daily basis. And it's not going to always be some, you know, like tongues of fire. Yeah. But there's, yeah, to be watching for those God, yeah. Al, Al Hammer calls them God sightings. You know, let's let's look for those God sightings, these Holy Spirit sightings. Yeah. So the the word um, that Peter uses in Acts chapter two and pops up a number of times is we are witnesses to these things. Right. And I think that's what this is: is just bearing witness to what the Holy Spirit is doing. I mean, that's what God sightings at the end of the day with Brother Al is doing, right? It's just bearing witness to where we saw God's fingerprints and doing these things. All right, friends, you've wasted a perfectly good hour. Not wasted. You're hanging out in the Bible. Um, Super fun for us to have this conversation. Thank you for joining in. And um, my breathing look, was much better this week, I think. I, I think so. So we'll see how it so. comes out on the recording. I had to put up with me chomping a few ice cubes, so hopefully that didn't uh, <laughs> get Coke. in the way too much. All right. Um, Holy Spirit, we honor you. Um, we honor you, Spirit of the Lord Jesus, the one who is uh, crucified, died, and risen for us. And Holy Spirit, please, as we come back together, send us your love, send us your power, and send us your grace. Amen. Amen. Amen.